Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. So the section that we're going over here today is Baha Alotecha, or when you raise. And um, just in case, in case you might be new to how these things are named, they're usually named by one of the key first phrases of the passage itself. So when it's talking, it starts out in chapter 8 here of uh, Numbers. So between Numbers 8 to 12, it starts out with when you raise up the lamps and the lamps of the menorah. So we got the introduction to the menorah back in Exodus about how to build it, what goes into it, etc., etc. So in this particular passage that we're looking at, uh, as you, it kind of looks like a big grab bag of stuff between you're building the menorah, washing the priests, then chapter 9 about this um, celebrating the Passover, and then what's known as the second Passover, the do-over for those who have a special circumstance who weren't able to celebrate it the first time, and it, as it mentions in there in the passage, because of you had contact with a dead body, contact with death, and also if you were too far away to be back to Yerushalayim to celebrate the Passover. And then it's grouped in together with this passage about you know when the lord picks up and moves the tabernacle when he sets back down you move basically you watch when the lord is moving you move when the lord stops you stop and that is where you are going to be dwelling for a bit then in chapter 10 you get this discussion about these two trumpets and the two trumpets and when you blow them why you blow them we talk about this uh, in, in passing every single Rosh Chodesh or New Moon, the beginning of the month, uh, when we are having a calling together. And that's one of the passages that we read in conjunction with this. And then also, it's calling together and now leaving the mountain. And then chapters 11 and 12, you got this interesting little combination of complaining, 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 and this interesting connection between the complaining of the people then the complaining of Moshe and also with the um, calling of help. Uh, <laughs> Moshe puts up a SOS, said, help, I need help. I really need some help. And the Lord commissions help for him for these 70 elders. And then in conjunction, in between all of this, you've got the the talking about the manna and we hate the manna, and then we want the meat, and then you get the meat, and then they're dying and from the meat, and then you have this thing of Miriam getting leprosy or this skin condition that we talked about earlier back in Leviticus, the ending parts of Leviticus, and uh, the interesting discussion of where uh, leprosy comes in, because this is one of those case studies for leprosy in addition to um uh, the the visiting uh, leader from Aram, or Naaman, or Naaman, that we see there in the historical writings. 
So all these things together, why are they all jumbled here together? So in a sense, it got already the answer. In the Haftarah section that we read from Zechariah, what did you see in there? Big screw up. And you had that picture of, um, you had, interestingly enough, called Joshua or specifically Yeshua, the one who was uh, the high priest, but he was then clothed. He put new clothes on. He was dirty. And so the high priest was given new clothes to wear. And then the accusations were made against this high priest saying, he's totally unworthy. But in his, in his own way, yes. But it was from the new clothes that were put on him that he was determined to be worthy. The new clothes put on. So that ties right into this strange jumble big grab bag of stuff you see in Numbers 11 and 12 with the, the manna and the complaining and then the leprosy and then um, the, the pigeons coming in all jumbled together. And then also what we read in John chapter 6 weaves into that as well because you get that picture of hopefully you started to see a little bit of what sort of interplay and wordplay was going on here with in John chapter 6 with the whole thing, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Then you, what did we see back there in Numbers chapter 11 and 12? The whole thing of we want flesh. We don't want this bread anymore. So that's where we're actually going to be focusing on here today. Eating that flesh and drinking the blood that Yeshua talked about. And it's like he's tying this specifically back in to the manna there in the wilderness. Why, why was he bringing this up? What was the Messiah talking about with this? So that is where we will be taking a look at here today. So in Numbers 11 and 12, one of the things that you see in this is that this is really, uh, <laughs> you can see that uh, heaven does not like complainers. Heaven does not like complainers. And do any of us like complainers? People that, because what is one of the things that often comes with complaining? Ungratefulness. Ungratefulness being a huge part of complaining. So that, <laughs> that uh, aspect of having people that should be thankful for everything that you're providing, not being thankful for everything that you're providing. So, let's dive in here further into chapter 11. The chapter 11, so in there is talking about the people in Moshe are complaining, and they have the anointing of the 70, and then you've got this plague of quail. So, looking first at, if you were to kind of describe this as kind of like a court case, this would be like the people of Israel versus the manna maker, the one who's bringing this bread down from heaven that the people are complaining about. Now, the interesting thing that a lot of commentators over many centuries have noted is that it talks about this rabble as the people, the people versus your people, talking about the Lord's people. This is the people, Moshe says. And the other places where you see this, the people, is places where you see rebellion showing up. 
And this rabble specifically is uh, a very interesting little um, play on words. In in Hebrew, you have, um, oftentimes you'll have similar sounding words will play off each other with um, sometimes different meanings, sometimes the same meanings. And then sometimes you will also have words that have, um, in, in English, we use the big, the big, uh, the big 50 cent word onomatopoeia. And onomatopoeia means um, something, a word that suggests what the meaning is just by the way it sounds. And that's similar to what you see with this word in Hebrew for this rabble, and they're called asafsuf. 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 Now, interestingly enough, that the what is the Hebrew word for the Red Sea? Yom Suf. So you have a very interesting play on words with Yom Suf and the Asaf Suf. And what are the Asaf Suf complaining about? They've complained both up to and after the Red Sea crossing. And the Red Sea crossing was supposed to be the big hallmark event for the Lord to say, I am the one who delivers you out of the house of bondage. Back in Mitzrayim, did you understand that you were actually in bondage? And we'll be seeing here, maybe they didn't quite understand how far in bondage they actually were at that particular time. And that's, every time we go through Passover, it's a great reminder, where have we come from our own house of bondage? What has the Lord freed us from? to move on into the people of God. Because just like with our ancestors in faith, that we might be carrying a lot of baggage from our house of bondage, from where we were before, to where God is taking us. So it's in Passover time and also in Yom Kippur, the Day Day of Atonement, it's a great time to take stock in uh, maybe we need to lighten our load to lighten up on the, all the baggage that we're carrying along. So another interesting aspect that we have here in this description of these, these folk who are complaining, bringing the complaint against the Lord. They talked about greedy desires is how the New American Standard Bible translates this. Literally, it's desiring a desire. Desire, there's just a very... In, in Hebrew also, is another little short Hebrew lesson, is where when you have in Hebrew, you will double words up. It is for emphasis. Like, for example, the Day of Atonement is called a Shabbat Shabbaton. They put those birth words together, and you'll see it translated as complete rest, which is true. But when you put Shabbat Shabbaton, you're emphasizing it together. It's like... In Hebrew, it's like underscoring, underlining, bold-facing it when you start seeing words that are packed together like in that particular structure. So with this picture of desiring a desire, these people are, that's why it translated greedy because their desire is overpowering them, which should start ringing some bells. Where have we heard that before? Not true in your own brains, yes, that's true. Where we were that before, yeah, very close to home, but also back in Genesis, beginning parts of Genesis, where the Lord is speaking to Cain and says, Hey, 
sin is crouching at your door and it seeks to have you or desires to have you. So are you going to let it in? Or are you going to keep the door shut? So a very interesting picture. So with this also, there are, so some of their claims that they're having of their greedy desires. Who will give us meat or basar, this flesh to eat? So you have the interesting picture. Who will give us this Basar, this flesh to eat. But they also say that our appetite, literally their nephesh, is gone. So you think that back to Genesis also, that you had the Lord formed man out of the dust of the earth, and he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and then the man became what? A nephesh chayim, or a soul that's living. So it is actually going through. It's the core part of you. So when you see in the apostolic writings that where it talks about that the Lord is one who can divide soul and spirit, um, yeah, that's at that point, what happens? You're dead. That's the, the grave, Sheol. You go to death. And then only the Lord can instill what? Again the breath of life again. And that's what we all look forward to. Hallelujah. In the resurrection. That's what we look forward to is that the breath of life from heaven comes in again. And then that what was now dead becomes alive again. So also we see in this that when their appetite was gone, there was nothing at all to look at except this manna. And just a little Rewind here, this man was first seen back in the Torah in Exodus chapter 16, and that was, what was the manna in response to? Complaining, where's the food? We're hungry. Where's the food? So the Lord sent this bread from heaven. And this was, so during their deliverance from the house of bondage, they are hungry, the Lord fed them with this manna. But now here, they're like, all we have to look at is this manna. So, you know, it's kind of similar to, you might think of someone who's being, um, that might be in a fire. We've had a number of those situations around here. And some people have been uh, pulled out by um, deputies or other people on the end of a long line, 150 foot, 150 foot rope down from a helicopter. So the deputy will come down and latch onto you, grab you, and then start hauling you off. But just imagine there is you're now pulled up out of the area and away from your danger of dying in the flames. And you're like, I'm sick of this. Why won't you just let me go? Come on. I'm sick of being grabbed on. Like, this is so uncomfortable. Uh, Yeah, you're like, okay. Just, uh, you want to go back? I can... uh, I wouldn't recommend that, but uh, yeah. So the other interesting thing of the appearance of manna originally is its appearance or its not appearing was tied to the um, Shabbat. Yes, Tammy. I think the perfect image of this complaint that you have here yes. is you or your children, you're hungry. Yes. You look at the refrigerator. Yes. And it's full of food. Mm. But it's nothing you want. Uh, nothing you want to eat. Yeah. 
So you've got plenty of food. You've got your milk and your eggs and cheese and, you know, maybe leftover, you know, spaghetti from yesterday afternoon that you saved a little bit of, but you don't want it. Mm. You want something else. So that greedy desire, you want something else. (laughs) Yeah, give us meat to eat. So the introduction that we have of the manna is also tied to Shabbat because this reintroduction of Shabbat, this weekly memorial of who the creator is, as you see that Exodus 16 and then in the, the way that account is structured, you have Exodus 20, so they actually get the testimony of the Ten Commandments, the testimony of the tablets. And in there, in the Fourth Commandment, is where it talks about that remember the Shabbat day, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why? Because in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, sea and all that's in them. Then on the seventh day, he rested or he Shabbat in the verb form of it. He stopped, he ceased and rested. And then said, because he stopped, then he set that aside and said, this part is a set aside day. Why? Because of the creator. So thus, when you see it coming here into Exodus chapter 16, it's like, well, who has delivered you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of all those gods that they had down there in Egypt? Who delivered them? The creator of heaven and earth delivered them. So the creator who can just give you food, give you water, out of a rock, can just open the sea when there's somebody chasing you and you have your back up against the sea. That is the one who's delivered you. You know, you're not trying to seek the favor of some fertility goddess or god of the field or whatever. Uh, yes, I believe uh, Larry has a comment or a question over there. Uh, I, was just, I was just thinking about what you were saying about the word that they said, the desire of mm. the desire. You know, you can imagine saying, well, I want this and that. Okay, well, you got that. Um, I, want, uh, uh, I want some of that. Do you know what that is? I don't know, but I want it. You know, so it's a great word. Yeah. Yeah, wanting. So probably kind of fitting that we just take a slight little rewind back to where some things that we took a look at in the, um, the Torah portion called uh, Beshelach. And uh, that covers, part of uh, it covers Exodus 16 and 17. And if you want to see the notes on that, we have this available at halal.info slash p16, because it's the 16th Torah reading of the cycle. So in Exodus 16, if you might recall, one of the primary questions was, is God with us or not? And the second question was, how will we get our daily bread? They were hungry. They wanted food. So some of what we saw in Exodus chapter 16 was the daily bread was something that was teaching some very important lessons. And (laughs) we may not, what we need may not be what we want, just like what Tammy was saying. Maybe looking in the celestial refrigerator and saying, well, all these blessings of heaven, uh, there's all these blessings here, but I don't want any of them. That's an interesting point of view. But you see there in the, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, and Luke chapter 11, verse 3, you see Yeshua talked about 
this praying in what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, really should be called the Disciple's Prayer or His Student's Prayer, because that is the prayer that the students were asking, how do we pray? And so um, the Lord Yeshua said, yeah, uh, this is the way you should pray, kind of as as a capstone of your other prayers of the day. Yes, uh, Alex. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I'm still reading up on that that early Christians, early church stuff, first mm-hmm. century, and a lot of people were. Look, there were different Jewish factions. The people when they started hearing Yeshua speak in John six, well, this is we we were looking for the guy who's going to kick Rome's at butt, yeah, or something else. You know, they were like, oh, well, this, you know, he was a cool guy to follow around initially, but he started getting into it, and it's like, <laughs> this is not what we desire. This is right. not what we were looking for, so, along the same lines. Yeah, it's about your expectations, where where you think you're going, and movements always have that, where you think you're starting out to one destination, but over time, you realize, ah, you're headed toward another destination. And that's not a destination you actually want to go to. So that's really a good lesson is to try to find out as soon as you can, really, where you're going, where this thing that you're following is going to take you. Because I always heard, heard that when I was younger, you know, um, the old aphorism, show me who your friends are and I'll tell you what, who you are, or really what you'll become, where you're going. So... I thought I was wiser than that, and so I headed down some bad roads until, thankfully, praise God, I was given some sort of an idea where those roads were heading. And it's like, ah, okay, now it's time to take the off-ramp here. But um, we just have to, to pray that the Lord opens the eyes of ourselves and of other people so that we can truly see where, where we're headed in life, whether it's toward a good destination toward the kingdom of heaven or toward somewhere else. So in a, another example of this that we talked about back in Exodus 16 with the Torah portion of Beshelach was that Yeshua, when he was tempted with those three great temptations, one of which was what about turning rocks into bread. And we've got some recorded instances there in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. And the one retort that the Messiah told to the adversary here is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, as he did with all of those encounters with the adversary, he said, it is written. And where was it written? There in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So when we get to Deuteronomy, we'll be seeing the message that is going to this next generation the second generation the israel born again really it's second generation that was going to go into the land or actually next week we'll be taking a look at why the first generation didn't get to go in the land but this message of deuteronomy was to the second generation that's what deuteronomy means it means the second telling the second story So it is the second telling of what the Torah is all about to this new generation. So that's why it's good when you read Deuteronomy in comparison to some of the things that went before, like 
when you read Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is the Ten Commandments, and then you compare that to Exodus chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, you'll see it's a very interesting comparison of what was important to say to that next generation. Now, there are some scholars who would say that Deuteronomy was, quote, discovered in the back of the uh, temple there at like maybe 600 to 400 AD, or not AD, BC. Sorry. So it was very, very, very late. And the intimation that some people will make is that it was concocted in BC 600 to 400 BC. So that assertion is made that this was not actually an ancient telling. But one of the things is that when you see the findings of some of these passages that go and date earlier, you'll see that Deuteronomy actually is as old as it claims to be, number one. And number two, well, is it a different telling? Or is what you see Deuteronomy to the rest of the Torah kind of the recapitulation, the retelling, the second telling for the second generation, is that very similar to what we see with the apostolic writings and the Tanakh, or the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, basically the whole Hebrew Bible, is the, you know, you could say, here we go, another kal v'chomer, or from light to heavy. So just, just like you have the apostolic writings, is a second telling for this new generation of Israel. So too, then, is Deuteronomy a second telling of the Torah for the new generation. So, likewise, just like with both of those, does Deuteronomy cancel out everything that was written before, that it's a referencing before, the historical accounts, the uh, Ten Commandments, or does it build on it? And that's very similar to the same thing we see with the apostolic writings. Do they cancel out the Hebrew Bible, or do they build on it for the new generation? The things that the new generation, it's like, okay, you know all this. Now, here's something more that you really need to pay attention to. So, very similarly, when we get to Deuteronomy, you'll see something similar, that that next generation that's going into the land, that here is what you really need to understand. Which is why, very interestingly enough, that Deuteronomy, as we will see, is really the heart of the Torah. It is where you'll see what the heart is supposed to be like of that second generation going into the land. So very similarly, just like with the prophets and the apostolic writings, you'll see what the heart of the people of God is supposed to be like. What the heart is supposed to be like. Not just the actions and the instructions, but how is the heart change different? So yes, you've read everything that is in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. But do you have the heart connection? Has your desires cleaved to those of the creator of heaven and earth? And you see the same thing that comes with the prophets. 
just like we would with Zechariah. It's like, okay, you have gone through, and Zechariah is writing to those, uh, the exile and post-exile people that are going to be coming back, coming back into the land and hit, hitting the restart button on Israel. So that would be, what, Israel 3.0? If you have Israel 1.0 is, I guess, maybe even 4.0. Because if you have Israel up to, up to Egypt, then Israel in Egypt, then Israel after Egypt, then Israel in going into the land, and then Israel coming back from exile, you'll see that this is several versions down. So what has the heart of the people actually become in the process? Have, have you changed? Have you understood the reason why? Like, have you understood the reason why that you, that uh, first generation after the Exodus did not go into the land? Do you understand why that generation was destroyed in exile and then sent their children into exile, both in the northern kingdoms and in the southern kingdoms of Israel? Do you understand why that happened? And then when you have the Mashiach show up, do you understand what it was he was talking about? And do you understand what the role of the Mashiach is in all of this? Do you understand all this? And that's a part of what this heart transformation comes in, that we will read a whole lot more as we move through the end of uh, the book of Numbers and into Deuteronomy. So that when you see in this passage that Yeshua is quoting from there in Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 6, all the commandments I am commanding you today shall, you shall carefully do, that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every, he lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. So, thus you can see some other lessons of what this daily bread is like. It's basically, do not despise the bread that comes from heaven. You see that heaven sees your need, and the heaven, heaven is supplying your need. So, don't despise it. It may not be what you want, your desire of desires. What you're seeking, you may not be looking for that. You want something that, quote, tastes better, but this is what heaven is providing. And you see the very similar thing that comes right back to our discussion here today in Numbers chapter 11, that <laughs> at Kirbot Hatava, or the graves of greediness, which is how that translates out to. So that greediness, that desire of desires, where does that lead? It, lead, it led to the grave for 
those people that were undertaking that direction. So when we come back to our passage here in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, and they're gushing over the, all the great things that they had in Egypt. You know, the, remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Yeah, they were so free. All right, they were so free. Which is always a good reminder is that if we're in a house of bondage, do we actually know that we are in a house of bondage? Our old way of life, before God called us out of that way of life, do we understand that that was keeping us in chains? Did we want heaven to actually break our chains or do we just want to drag them along with us all the time? Just keep getting pulled back in to that old way of life. So that's something that we have in recognizing one's blessings. We thank God for them. Thank God for the blessings we have. So to take Tammy's point of going to the heaven's refrigerator, opening the door and just grabbing something and saying, thank you. Thank you for giving me this and everything else that's in here. I may not want it, but I may need it. So in Exodus chapter 17, just as we bring this recap to a close, one of the primary questions again is, God with us or not? Again, this is set here right after the Red Sea crossing, which should be, you know, you've seen the Ten Commandments and various versions of that. I mean, that would kind of give you an idea that, wow, I think heaven's power is on display here. (laughs) Heaven is really doing something, acting, acting on nature, acting on a superpower of the time period and taking out this army that was going against them. So this question here is, where do we find this living water and who is really fighting for us with the sea? So Israel had gone through the 10 plagues in Egypt and Israel witnessed this Savior God's delivering Israel from the army, the Egyptian army in the sea. And the crossing had happened. Then they had water, then they had food. So even after all this, they ask, and they're asking their Masa and Meribah, which when we get to our discussion next week, this will come up. So this is a good preview of, of coming things with the week to come. Because there are two key things that are mentioned like, and we've gone over this in years past with Hebrews chapter three and Hebrews chapter four there in the apostolic writings. And especially in Hebrews chapter three, it's repeated over and over and over and over again from Psalm 95. And it references this period in Exodus 17. And also the subtext is, is what we'll get on next week with they sent the 10 or the 12 spies into the land and 80% 80% of them, 10 of them came back and said, ah, we can't do it. So basically, you're being presented with the blessings of the Lord and like, ah, there's no way, we, we, we can't do it. So thus, when you're faced with this land of strife, the place of strife and the place of testing, and you're asking, well, is the Lord with us or not? 
each of us, when we come into all those particular things, I mean, we've encountered some of those similar things in the past couple of years with either threats against our health or threats against our jobs or threats against our faith, threats against our trust in God, threats against our relationships with our friends and family. All those things come into it. And yeah, I, I remember facing this similar thing when I was younger. Is God with us or not? Is God with me in this journey? Is, is it really, really valid to be having a disagreement with, my, with uh, some of my family members that didn't want me to go down a path towards God? So eventually, thankfully, that worked out. But it's one of those aspects that we see in Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. It ends with this punchline that gets repeated over and over again in, Psalm, uh, in Hebrews chapter 3, that therefore I swore in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. And in Hebrews 4, you see that entering my rest... So context of that, entering the land, entering the promised land, is connected to Shabbat in Hebrews 4. It says, therefore, there exists a a Shabbat rest or a Sabbath rest for all believers. So why are they connected? Because throughout the prophets, the Messianic era is called Yom Shekelo Shabbat, the day that is always Shabbat meaning it is a Shabbat that never ends. Because why? What is a Shabbat the commemoration of? The creator of heaven and earth. And what are we all looking to get back to? What we see in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. Therefore, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. (laughs) So, back in the garden again. and. Thus, people are dwelling directly with God. So hopefully that little recap of Exodus 17, uh, 16 and 17 really helps in putting this into picture of where the people of God are coming from. Because remember that numbers is a bit of a rewind because, you know, we we think we went through Exodus and then, wow, we, we did a whole lot of, of uh, study of details and instructions in Leviticus, then it's like numbers is almost as if you hadn't gone through Leviticus and time period. It's like you're rewinding in time back to the time at the mountain because we read in this passage they're getting ready to leave from the mountain. So we're rewinding back to that time period where they've had the encounter with God there recorded in Exodus 20. And then the golden calf, as it's recorded just a few chapters later. And so then the building of the tabernacle. And now this tabernacle is ready to go and we read about it with when the cloud gets up and moves. Then you pack up the tabernacle in the order that we just read in the previous two um, sections of numbers. And then you move out. And when the cloud stops, then you do it in reverse order and set the tabernacle back up again. So it is a journey of trust. 
But what is it that you actually trust in? Do you trust in the basar or the flesh, the stuff you can sink your teeth into? Or do you trust in what heaven actually provides, which is the manna, oh, the stuff that comes six days a week, ugh, and double the portion on the sixth day? So we get back to this complaints, the people of Israel versus the manna maker. And we see it in Numbers chapter 11, the complaints that Moshe makes, the complaint of the Ha'ish, as he's described in other places, or Moshe the man, the friend of God, the friend of the court, you might say. So he describes some of his complaint aspects in like Numbers 11, 11, You've laid the burden of all this people on me. So saying to the Lord, hey, this has all come down upon me. In verse 13, where am I to get meat for all these people? So they're crying out for meat. Where am I going to get meat for all these people? And the prayer for relief there in 14 and 15, he says, I can't do this alone. And if I'm going to do it alone, you just might as well kill me now because I'm... It's interesting how it ends. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. What do you mean wretchedness? Of not being able to take the task that was put on him. Of seeing that he might fail with this huge task that's been given. Because we've read in times past, like at the end of Exodus, where there was the golden calf and you have the intercession, and we'll see in a few more chapters here in Numbers that there is another intercession with another plague. So this wretchedness you see from Moshe is like, I may fail with this huge task that you've, you've given me. Now, when we're going through Exodus, we saw in um, chapter 19 where you have uh, chapter 18, chapter 19 as they're approaching the mountain you have this little vignette where um, in, in Exodus, he's called Yitro or Jethro, the father-in-law of Moshe. Uh, Zipporah's father there from Midian comes to visit, and he sees Moshe just going, going at it 24-7, it seems like, with all these people coming with these requests. And he says, ah, you've you got to delegate, as they say in modern managerial parlance you've got to pass off some of this uh, authority and responsibility to other people so you are not the only one doing it alone so in this you see the the interesting picture in exodus and here in numbers where the combined of this recommendation from someone who's watching israel from afar and interestingly enough he shows up again in this passage he's called ruel or friend of God, interestingly enough. So the friend of God from Midian, Yitro from Midian, comes in, is observing Israel from the outside and saying, look, this huge responsibility is put on Moshe. You've got to delegate it out. And what does the Lord do? He says, all right, you're going to set aside these 70 people who are going to help you. And then you see this interesting picture there in chapter 11. You think you're reading the book of Acts. Spirit came on them, and what happened? They prophesied. They're like, well, didn't that stuff just only happen in the New Testament? No. 
when the Spirit of the Lord moved on people, they had specific functions that the Spirit was empowering people to do. And so you see in this particular case that it was coming and giving them the prophesying or you know, speaking for. And you see that prophecy then showed up later in this particular passage. And Moshe is saying, well, um, <laughs> in a very interesting little vignette near the end of this chapter in 11, where people are saying, well, these two people in the camp, you know, should we stop them? Like, no. I wish everybody in Israel would be given the gifts so that they could be prophets as well. And then you have the very interesting vignette, and it's written in poetic form in Hebrew, of uh, where the Lord is saying what the difference between Moshe and typical prophets are. And when you read the prophetic writings, it's like, yeah, that nails it pretty well. Speak to them in visions and in dreams. And when you read books like Ezekiel, you're like, wow, that's quite a dream. I, if I had a dream like that, I'd, I'd probably be in therapy for a long time. But um, when you see this picture, these messages of the prophets can be a bit murky. But the, most, the message to Moshe is what? It talks about a mouth-to-mouth or face-to-face, speaking as a one speaks to a friend. Where have you heard that before? With Avraham earlier. So, yes, Alex. I was going to uh, get back to that, just what you were saying, too, because Moshe, and I have a different interpretation with it's It's kind of poetic. I mean, he talks to Yahweh like, you, you, what are you doing to me, man? You know? Yeah. They, and that is a unique relationship. So that, that little piece of 11 and 12 there is really pivotal. I mean, it's just, yeah. just a super uh, big statement between Yahweh to Moshe. And, yeah. And where, where have you heard another interesting interchange like that? You mean some other prophet or someone else speaking Somewhere to Yahweh else like in the that? Bible, where have you heard... It, goes very similarly bingo at, yeah. at what we what we call at the in the garden if you will yes if you will can you take this burden away from me but nevertheless not as i will but as you will and so thus you're saying that that very interesting picture so thus when we get to deuteronomy and we see that there is going to be a prophet one who comes who speaks for god like after moshe you got to listen to him so just like israel was supposed to listen to moshe well then how much more would the prophet the prophet as he later became known are you supposed to speak or listen to those words because you'll see that when he was talking to the adversary you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, thus, you get this very interesting picture. You know, <laughs> do you think your leader walks on water? You know, yeah, and indeed so. Because in this interesting juxtaposition, like we were talking at the outset of our discussion here today, in, in Numbers chapter 11, you get this weird combination of people complaining Moshe complaining, but Moshe's complaining is very much like Messiah is complaining in the garden. 
And was Messiah's complaining adversarial? No, it was like it was like an ana, a help. I need help. This burden is very, very heavy. As it talks about in one of the accounts, it's like his sweat was like drops of blood on the ground. That was how much agony. So it's a very interesting juxtaposition or contrast that you have between these two. Drops of blood, like sweat, because your anguish of this task you've been given is very, very heavy. You need help to be bared up under it. Versus desiring a desire. Give me, give me, give me, give me. It's a very stark sort of thing. So thus, you can sort of see how those two things together, it's um, really quite um, sad how you see the greediness for meat versus that not wanting the bread that came down from heaven. So thus, hopefully, you start seeing that little discussion that Yeshua was having in John chapter 6 about the bread that came down from heaven, having eating my flesh, drinking my blood. should be sort of thinking back, okay, well, do you want to be like that generation that was there chomping, chomp, chomp, chomp on all of the quail that came in, chomp, 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 it was piled up so high, eating, 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 until uh, this plague came through and took them all out with the meat still in their mouth, still chomping down on it, still in the midst of fulfilling your desire. And then the judgment came. You didn't realize this judgment was coming. Actually, you really should have noticed the judgment was coming because of how Numbers 11 started to begin with and why this place is called Taborah or the burning place because the fire of the Lord had gone out for those who it says they were um, complaining as one who complains or speaks of the evil things from the Lord. Yes, uh, Carrie has a comment or a question here. Well, I think that's what he's talking about when he says, seek me because you ate loaves and were filled, not because you've seen signs. Yes. Because it seems like they were like, you know, it's like every time they had a sign, okay, cool, they liked God, but then, you know, they got, things got mundane or monotonous, I guess. Yes. And then they just kind of lost sight and it was like, what, you need another sign? Yeah. You know? And it, it's, it's very interesting how you end up with that today we we have like a small little uh, sliver of this today and they they call it um various ways it's put it's called cgi fatigue or you know car crash fatigue it's like what was the way that that um movie makers would try to get your attention make things exciting explosions and car crashes and this and that well it got it got ridiculous after a while it was just like movie was just nothing but and most of it was just car crashes and explosions. So, and then with the graphics, you know, you come out with uh, with dinosaurs. They recreated dinosaurs, so they're totally lifelike. And then just people, oh, it's like after the fourth iteration of that, like, all right, that again. Well, it's like, you know, what, what do you want to see? The the sea open up every other day? Do you do you say, okay, the one who did that, I should trust him? So that's a very the interesting a very interesting point in what Yeshua is getting at in John chapter 6. It's like, you shouldn't need this sign. You should be just thankful. Oh, 
thankful. I am getting what I need. My back is up against the sea. He opens the sea. I am hungry. He gives me bread from heaven. I'm thirsty. He gives water from the rock. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Not like, all right, what, Lord, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> yes, Larry. It's funny because Carrie put words to what I've been thinking ever since you talked about opening the refrigerator. You know, <laughs> yes. I'm thinking, you know, open the refrigerator and see if the light is still on. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad. Uh, some things just don't really change over time, do they? So we see that really what Yeshua is, seems to be getting at with the reference that he's making back to the manna and this, this flesh and blood and signs and miracles, just what Carrie was talking about, that, you know, what is it that you are actually looking for? So you're talking about controlling the wind and the waves. And we see in this passage in John chapter 6 about what? Wind and waves. Walking on the waves. Multiplying the bread and the fish. We had the manna that came down from heaven. We have the bread that came down from heaven, as Yeshua says. And then you have in this particular passage talking about the feeding of the 5,000. And another passage talks about the 4,000. And that's a whole other story in of itself. But one of those pictures that you get with the numbers involved of the 5,000 with the 12 baskets left over 12 tribes. And the 4,000 with the seven bags left over, or seven baskets left over, that picture looks like it's talking about the nations. Because 770 is often connected with going out into the nations, the 70 nations that are talked about in Genesis. So, yes, uh, Carrie. Well, in the four, the four corners of the world. Yes, exactly. Four and four times a thousand, four in the tens. Yes. So you get that picture of going out into the greater world, which is kind of what we talked about in the last tour portion about the interesting role of Gershon with the, the curtain carriers and about the big tent and the temple getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes through time to encompass more and more people. So that is a very interesting picture. Now, um, it's, it's also quite st stark. I, I saw a picture recently that um, this is not, obviously not a picture because it, it didn't seem that uh, Kodak was uh, in business at this particular time period, the tabernacle, but somebody's rendition of what we had seen earlier in Numbers when it talks about where the, the, the tribes were camped and who was camped around the tabernacle so this is an artist's rendition of what it may have looked like with the, the tribes there. It's kind of interesting how you can even see, if you can squint, you'll see that right around the tabernacle, it looks like those, um, the tribes of the Levites that we had read earlier in Numbers and where they are portioned. And you see kind of the two tents out in front of uh, Moshe and Aharon out there in front, of right by the gate of the tabernacle. So you get this picture. Who is at the center of the camp of Israel? The Lord is, yes. The creator of heaven and earth is at the center of it. I saw this picture recently. Uh, this is the, they call um, the uh, Burning Man, the camp around Burning Man. It's coming up in this summer out in the Nevada desert. And it is uh, around a, the figure of the Burning Man. It's a giant 
huge 40 foot high uh, wood sculpture of a man that they set fire to it. And one of the interesting aspects of that particular thing is what they talk about why they burn this man. And they say that it's a release, that everyone releases your fears, your previous selves, whatever else might be itching to let go of so that you can be free. So you could say, okay, people want to be free. You want to be free. So it's a, it's a very sim- similar thing that we ourselves want to be free. We want to have, uh, you're in bondage. You realize that you're in bondage. And other mystical traditions around the planets come up with the idea of that you yourself are enslaved by your desires. And so that you should just rid yourself of your sensations and your desires, and thus you can reach a higher plane, various ways that's put. So the interesting picture of this is, well, then how is it that you go about it? Is this just you are burning up uh, yourself? Or, as we saw in Leviticus, are you coming in with your offering to go up? But if you go to Burning Man and then you leave, well, you are the same. You went there and you leave. But when you are going into the camp of God and toward the dwelling place of God, you, our goal is to be different. To be different. And we see that the new man, as Paul calls it, the being born again, uh, the new generation, the second generation of Israel going forward. So that is something as we continue to go through and look at the Torah that we can share this message of being free from the bondage of our previous lives, our previous way of living, and moving on with the creator of heaven and earth, not uh, kind of shunning the existence of the creator of heaven and earth that you are your own creator of your own destiny. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.